The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get Our Way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. approach to tackling coronavirus is to prepare for the worst and work for the best. You need a totally different style of leadership. It's not enough to have a plan. You need to be testing, testing, testing. Britain and the EU, do they want to be seen as locking horns on an issue such as a no-deal Brexit when the economy is going to be suffering and people's lives are going to be facing so much disruption? You're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Solik. And very good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing. Now, we start with the news that the Prime Minister has a new child, a son, in fact. Uh, that news coming just in the last few hours. He, uh, it'll be the first child born to a serving Prime Minister, I think, since Tony Blair had his son Leo. That's all the way back in uh, the year 2000. And that was the first time for a very long time then that anyone had a child in that position. Uh, but anyway, he has, uh, yes, he has, he has announced the birth and uh, he and Carrie Simmons are very pleased with it. Surprise, surprise. So there's your good news for the show. Uh, the, the, the rest is rather bleak, I've got to say. The political world, of course, focused on coronavirus testing today and the fact that it is now available to millions more people in England. The government loosening rules on who can apply. So testing has been expanded uh, last week, first of all, to all key workers in England and their households. Now all care home residents and staff, people over 65 and those who must leave home to work are entitled to a test. The Environment Secretary, George Eustace, is confident of reaching that target of testing 100,000 people a day by tomorrow. The, the capacity uh, will be there and we, uh, we are confident that those people, those 100,000 people will be tested because we are widening this right out today so that anyone over the age of 65, anyone working in a key industry can get a test. Uh, they just need to go online and book one. But Britain should expect to stay homebound for a bit longer. The government says around three weeks from releasing the tool that it deems essential to easing the lockdown, the test, track and trace system uh, will include 18,000 contract tracers to spot people possibly exposed and also the release of a mobile phone app that will do part of that job automatically. Meanwhile, we are also uh, got the story on Bloomberg today uh, that the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson's top aide, pressed scientists to back a lockdown. Sources tell us Dominic Cummings was more than a bystander at meetings of scientific experts, swaying discussion towards faster action. But number 10 denies that political advisers influenced the committee of experts. Well, let's bring in our guest, Andrew Morrison, who's Conservative MP for South West Wiltshire. Andrew, welcome to the programme. Thanks for being with us. Um, first of all, let's just pick up on that point about the influence of people other than scientists in making these sort of decisions or influencing them. Uh, is it right that someone like Dominic Cummings should speak at a SAGE committee meeting and influence their advice? 
It's a pleasure to be with you. Um, well, I don't know whether he did, uh, so I think it's pure speculation. Um, but the expert committee, SAGE, uh, is always touted by ministers as being independent, and ministers say that they accept its advice. I think it's important, therefore, uh, to understand that this is expert advice on which ministers are relying, uh, and any political input clearly needs to be uh, distinguished from that. My guess is, if Dominic Cummings was involved at all, he was there as an observer, which I think is legitimate. Uh, but, but Andrew, if he did speak out, would it not undermine any advice we get from that group? It is, of course, the body that is steering a lot of what the government is, is deciding to do throughout this outbreak. Yes, but I don't think there's any serious suggestion that the committee was influenced by uh, those who are, who are not scientists, who are not members of the committee. I think that's pure speculation. I think if it was, uh, there would be some cause for concern, but I don't really think that that's uh, a serious proposition at, at the moment. If, if he was there as an observer, I think that's perfectly fine. I can't see any objection to that. Okay, to be absolutely clear, fine as an observer, but not taking part, not talk, not, not speaking in a way to influence the committee. Just to make that absolutely clear. Uh, well, yes, that would be my view, because, this, because SAGE, this, the expert committee, uh, is uh, a committee of experts, is not political. Uh, there may be political judgments to be made, but that needs to be separate and distinguished from the advice being given by experts. All right. What about the testing target? 100,000 a day, just a couple of days to go now until the, the, the deadline, really, for that. Do you think that's going to be met? Uh, well, I hope it is. Ministers have been saying that it is, and uh, they will be uh, held to account if, if that target is, is not met. Um, I, re I regret that, that we haven't uh, done more testing. Uh, but I think, as, uh, as others have said, testing actually isn't, isn't the, the primary issue with controlling this pandemic. There are other things that have to be done uh, as well. And I think it's, there's, it's a mistake to overly focus uh, on, uh, on tests, uh, the different types of tests and the numbers that are being done. That's not actually central uh, to controlling what's going on. What do you think is central then? Well, it, it, it's, the, it's the usual somewhat boring message about uh, social, social distancing. It's around the lockdown. Uh, it's around all of those, thi all of those things. Uh, it's possibly around PPE, uh, more widely using it in the community if it's necessary, if, if it's found to be necessary by experts uh, to do that. Uh, so it's those sorts of issues, I think, that are more significant uh, potentially than the swab test, which but, is really the test. But, but Andrew, about. if we look at somewhere like South Korea, which was very on it very quickly with testing and hasn't had any sorts of big lockdown, they've seemed to have kept this under control. Is that not a model we should be following? Well, I think South Korea did a, a lot of things differently, and I think it's, uh, it's probably not appropriate to uh, overly compare South Korea with the UK. There's it, it always a temptation to look at a country that appears to have clamped down very early on this uh, with apparently good results and say, well, that proves that the UK, for example, or indeed the US, uh, have not done things uh, as well. I think it's far too early to make those sorts of judgments. And of course, different countries have done things in very different ways. There's lots of moving parts for this. I'd be really reluctant uh, to say that South Korea's success has been as a result of early testing. All right. Well, if we're not comparing South Korea, let's compare Germany. Let's compare other European countries, because the UK is shaping up to be amongst the worst hit in Europe in terms of fatalities uh, and cases. I mean, that does rather suggest the government missed the chance to be fast enough and tough enough at the beginning, because those countries are comparable. 
Uh, they are more comparable. I think I would accept that. Uh, but again, there are so many moving parts, and we're so early on in this. Um, I think it's. I think we have to be really cautious about comparing and contrasting even countries that are relatively similar, like Germany and the UK. Uh, there will be a time when we have to review all of this and learn lessons, not least because I suspect uh, this won't be the last one of these pandemics and we need to prepare for the next one. Uh, but I'm, I'm really reluctant to do that on the hoof, uh, as it were, because I think we'll find at the end of the day that different countries have done things very differently and, and better in some respects and not so good in others. And I, I would rather wish for the, the dust to settle before we start to leap to those sort of early conclusions. Okay, well, let's focus on the UK then. When do you think the easing of the lockdown should begin? Because there are a lot of your colleagues on the back benches who are starting to clamour uh, and say that the the sort of the stranglehold on business is being too strong if this continues for much longer. Yeah, I have I have a lot of sympathy with that. Uh, my understanding is that ministers are doing a piece of work at the moment to look at actually the, the mort mortality morbidity that relates to uh, the lockdown because, of course, the concern is that people aren't accessing uh, treatment, for example, for cancer, uh, for stroke, uh, for cardiovascular uh, disease early enough. And, of course, that comes with its own mortality and morbidity. So you have to make this rather rather um, grisly comparison between lives lost from COVID and lives lost from other things. Uh, and I think that's an interesting piece of work. And I think it may very well be influential in decisions around lockdown, uh, quite apart from the wider economic impact of this. And I think we've all become sort of amateur econ economists in, in this process and, and developed our understanding better uh, around the link between a vibrant economy and our ability to sustain vital public services. And I think all of those things going to feed into uh, ministerial planning in the days ahead and possibly will result in a uh, in easing of some restrictions where it's expedient to do so and I for one would welcome that. I suppose the key part about this though also is wh what about telling people, taking people into these kind of discussions that you say are going on and research that's going on because a lot of people feel frustrated they're being treated like children some people say because they're not being given a sense of how this could uh, be unwound, let alone the when of it. I mean, isn't there a duty on the government to take people seriously? I, I think that's right. Uh, I have to say what has struck me about this crisis and the government's management of it is, is its willingness to try to communicate uh, really very regularly with the public. Um, but I would entirely agree with you uh, that people need to be taken along with this uh, and not have something imposed upon them. The evidence that we have, polling evidence uh, that we have, suggests that actually the public is broadly speaking content with the way the government has, has approached this and managed it. Uh, I don't think there's any sense yet, certainly I don't get it from my constituents, that they feel that they're being set upon, put upon, uh, unduly disadvantaged. And they do, I think, think that the government is trying to respond to a, a, a crisis uh, that is evolving all the time as best it possibly can. And I, I, I think that's a good thing. Do you think the bar has been lowered for a lockdown? I, I know the changing of the fifth te test for the latest uh, government guidance, adding that uh, they should not risk a second peak of infections that overwhelms the NHS. Those last few words being added there. Yeah. 
Uh, it's interesting. Uh, that, that, that is an addition, and I, I've been uh, considering that myself and the implications of it. I think what would worry me uh, is if we delay a, a second peak uh, and it starts to look as if it's butting up against the winter months, when, of course, we would naturally expect there to be uh, pressures from um, seasonal flu. Uh, if that were to be, were to be added uh, to uh, COVID-19, uh, then I think we are heading for a real problem. So in terms of timing uh, a possible second peak or trying to smooth this curve in a way that isn't going to overwhelm the NHS, I think one has to get one's uh, judgments extremely, extremely uh, uh, accurately defined because I think we could run into uh, more winter pressures. Uh, of course, what we're doing all the time, what the government's doing all the time, is trying to uh, improve uh, our capacity in terms of ITU and ventilators, but one assumes that at some point uh, that will um, reach a state at which the government is fully confident that the system will be able to cope as, as, as best it possibly can. And beyond that, of course, the prospect of uh, antivirals and a vaccine, which, of course, will, but either of those will be game changers. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. Yes, well, I've Pretty Patel. She's the Home Secretary. She's been a bit invisible, it has to be said, until fairly recently. But she's being grilled by MPs this morning about her department, which responded to the coronavirus outbreak in a way that many people think wasn't really as it should have been. It's only the second time Pretty Patel's appeared before the Commons Home Affairs Committee. And it comes amid accusations that she'd been avoiding scrutiny during a time of national emergency. At the same time, Labour's called for the findings of an inquiry in to her conduct to be made public as soon as possible. The Cabinet Office has investigated claims that Pretty Patel had bullied staff at three different government departments. Now, according to the BBC, the report's been completed and the outcome is likely to be known in the next few days. The Home Secretary, for her part, has denied the claims. And meanwhile, the Chartered Institute of Personnel and Development is calling for the government's coronavirus job retention scheme to be extended until September. The group found that employers want more flexibility to allow furloughed staff to work reduced hours and to keep the scheme in place beyond June when it's currently scheduled to end. Uh, it's a sentiment echoed by public services think tank Reform. It said the UK should follow the example of countries including France, Germany and Canada and allow furloughed staff to work some hours as businesses become uh, begin reopening. The coronavirus job retention scheme doesn't currently allow that and reform is warning that firms will face a cliff edge with a sudden stop to state support as they reopen even if full-time working is not possible 
And finally, VE Day. Uh, it's almost got forgotten in all this, of course, but it's the 75th anniversary of Victory in Europe Day uh, towards the end of the Second World War, and the Queen will commemorate it with a televised address to the nation. The message will form part of a series of events on May the 8th to mark the end of the European part of World War II. Right, let's get back to our Bloomberg scoop. Dominic Cummings pressing Sage, the government's scientific advisers, to recommend lockdown measures. According to two people involved, but Cummings played far more than a bystander's role at a crucial Sage meeting on March the 18th, as the panel discussed social distancing options to tackle the COVID-19 outbreak. Remember, back then, we were still trying to work out exactly what should happen. Well, for more on this, we're joined by Bloomberg opinion editor Therese Raphael. Uh, Therese, I suppose the issue here it raises a lot of questions around transparency in government. It's something you've been writing about this week. Yeah, I think the key issue here is less what Dominic Cummings' role is on on that committee, although it's important and it's interesting and we ought to know it. But the real question that I have is why keep SAGE's membership secret? I mean, Britain has had scientific advisory committees for years on a number of subjects. They are um, an important part of the policy process. And if you think of all the policies in which science, uh, scientific input is important. So, you know, from nuclear power to climate change to, um, you know, vaccines for children, such as the measles, mumps, rubella one, which was very uh, controversial at a period to, you know, how to deal with the, the volcanic ash uh, problem that emerged um, some years ago. All of these uh, policies are, are fed into by scientists. Um, but obviously, science uh, is is often uh, affected by uncertainty. It's not necessarily clear. Scientists make assumptions. Those assumptions feed into models. And we've seen with coronavirus that the models can be wildly off. Um, and policy uh, that is based on models needs to be disclosed to the public so, so that other scientists and the public understand the basis on which the policy is made. So I think what we're seeing here is, you know, partly this, that Dominic Cummings himself is such a magnet for, uh, for controversy. He, you know, obviously he, he was the key figure in the Brexit debate and he, in Boris Johnson's election campaign. So of course, having him on that committee is going to be very controversial. But, you know, in a way, the controversy around what Cummings, uh, you know, how he influenced that committee or didn't influence that committee, I think is, is really taking away from this bigger question of why don't we know the scientists who are on the committee? Why, why aren't those names disclosed? Why aren't the minutes disclosed in a timely fashion? Um, why isn't there more debate about the science that's feeding into government policy? I think that's a, that's a question we should be asking. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we had Andrew Morrison earlier on the program, the MP, Conservative MP, saying he didn't necessarily believe that, and that that Dominic Cummings had had this kind of influence, but that it was important that it was a science committee and not one subject to outside influences. But it becomes almost mm. like a, a mysterious um, grey group in the background that anyone can put anything on, as long as, as you say, we don't know who they are. Yeah, there was a, a study done in, I think it was 2017, looking at what potential influence or what influence had, uh, uh, ha- the politics had had on various science committees uh, going back some years. And what they found is that 
while non-scientists almost always sit on these committees, we, we sort of forget that. There's, they're not just composed of scientists, although it's very rare and maybe unprecedented that a political advisor um, of Dominic Cummings' uh, either level would be on one. But non-scientists, nevertheless, are on these committees. And what this study found is that political interference or any sort of steering of the agenda from from the, the non-scientists there is actually quite rare. But of course, you know, this pandemic sort of breaks all precedent. It's um, unlike any other experience we've had. So, and, and Cummings himself is, is, you know, sits at the heart of Downing Street and uh, has the ear of Boris Johnson. So these are, you know, it, it is a, it is important to know uh, what influence he had. Now, the Bloomberg story today uh, cites sources saying that he encouraged the committee toward lockdown. We know that the government had been leaning toward herd immunity initially, but we don't know whether Dominic Cummings, um, you know, had also sort of influenced the committee in that direction. So there's just a lot of unanswered questions in the way to uh, learn lessons from how this process has unfolded and the mistakes have been made is only through more transparency. And what about the lockdown more widely? You've got lots of European countries, as we mentioned in the first part of the programme, either lifting measures or talking about it. But here in Britain, we seem held back by the lack of a contact tracing operation. It's that we don't have the, uh, the infrastructure in place or the testing capability to be able to go through this next stage where we can track down everybody who may have come into contact with somebody else who has the virus. Right. So I think, you know, one thing that was interesting after Boris Johnson uh, returned this week was that the, you know, they set out these five tests for when lockdown restrictions can be lifted. And the fifth test was the hardest one. And that test said that uh, restrictions could only be lifted if there were assurances that a second wave of infections, um, that there would be no second wave of infections that would, you know, overwhelm the health service. And they've, they've watered down that test. And that suggests that the government is really looking for ways to kind of get the economy moving again. But I think the biggest block right now is the school system, because unless you can reopen schools, how do you reopen the rest of the economy, knowing that so many parents are stuck home, uh, homeschooling, supervising remote learning and, and that sort of thing? So you know, one key here will be getting the school system open. It's what we're seeing in, uh, I think Denmark was the first European country country to open reopen its schools. Norway has just followed. Um, and we're seeing schools, especially for younger children, reopening around Europe. And I, I, I suspect we'll get some kind of announcement, at least on a timetable for that. And that's going to be crucial, not just because schools keep parents uh, away from productive labor, but they're a huge part of the economy. And also because there's so many long-term uh, social implications of children being out of school. We know this from you know, numerous studies, from experiences in, uh, in the U.S. when you know, we have long summer holidays and children from disadvantaged families have greater learning loss during those holidays. We know it from experiences in World War II uh, during the Blitz when, uh, when children didn't get schooling. So getting kids back to school is going to be an important, uh, you know, the, I think, the thing that helps unlock some of these other areas of the economy. And speaking of children, I guess in about four <laughs> years' time, Boris Johnson will have to be uh, more concerned about it. He already has children, of course. Um, but he now has one more, uh, born uh, today, we understand, or the birth has been announced. Um, Theresa, I mean, it's a fascinating moment because Boris Johnson has been through a series of, of quite personal dramas uh, in these last few weeks. And uh, 
do you think it helps his image, perhaps? Do people feel more personally connected with him as a part of this? I, yeah, Boris Johnson's persona is sort of inextricable from his political uh, personality. And I, certainly, I think that we've seen so much uh, sympathy toward him as he went uh, through the you know, harrowing ordeal of a severe case of COVID-19 and being in intensive care. And I think, you know, it doesn't hurt to have a new baby in Downing Street. It will help drain away some of the criticism about his handling of this crisis. But, you know, again, it's so hard. I I think in normal times, a baby in Downing Street would be a very uh, nice PR tool. But we also in times when people are losing their lives, health workers are dying, uh, you know, many jobs are, are, are being lost businesses are folding so you know it's uh it's a nice distraction i'm not sure that it will uh get him out of some of the tougher questions around testing and ppe and when the lockdown will be lifted but i don't think he'll be taking a paternity leave i could be wrong on that but i think he'd he'd probably wait on that given his recent absence and everything else going on bloomberg westminster listen weekdays at noon on dab digital radio in london hi everyone I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way. A brand new show from My Heart Podcast where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.